following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Psalm 15. Psalm 15, that's after the first 14 Psalms, it's the 15th one. This is a Psalm of David, we'll read it together here in a minute. I'll read it and then we'll pray. A Psalm of David, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. God, we ask this morning again, as we gather, this is your house, a house of prayer. We come to you asking that you would fill us, that you would take our ears and open them, our eyes, that we would see, and that you would change our hearts. We would not be hearers only, but we would be doers of the word. That you would aliven us to understand your word so that we might obey May we not come, look at the mirror, your word, and just walk away as one that's not changed, but rather, Lord, repent and see what you are doing and change and pursue you, Father, because of your great love for us. I thank you as Caleb prayed this morning as well that we have nothing to bring, Lord, somehow to make you like us or, or uh, you know, do anything that's deserving that you would shed your love to, on us. But God, you did because of your great love and because of your glory. And so this morning we ask as your people gather together that you would teach us, that you would change us, and Lord, that we would bring honor and glory to your name uh, and that you would fulfill our joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So if you've been with us at all, we've been in Galatians. Uh, Stacy's been in Galatians. He's away in Chicago right now visiting some family. We're taking a brief sidestep, reading through the Old Testament, and uh, Psalm 15 kind of grabbed me, um, both by its content, the questions it asks, and then also there's, I have a, a song running in my head from a, a group called My Soul Among Lions who does the Psalms, and one of their Psalms is Psalm 15, and it continues to come back. It's kind of been an earworm. I keep on thinking about it, keep on considering it, and asking myself the question that the song asks. And it's continued to bring me back then to say, okay, then if it asks this and answers it here, I need to think and, and look through Psalm 15. So I'm just bringing you along a little bit here and some of the stuff that I've been working through. Um, Stacy, again, will return again next week and we'll be right back into Galatians. But we're taking just a minute here to step out uh, for Psalm 15. It's not going to be your normal Thanksgiving Day passage uh, at all, although that's wonderful and, and, and worthy of our time. Uh, today, we're going to specifically work through this one that David has given to us. Um, if, you are, if you know anything about psalms, you have different types of psalms. Some that are specifically made for ascending to the temple. Some that are made are just thanksgiving. Some that are just in praise to God. This one specifically, some that are laments. This one is called a wisdom psalm. Now, what is a wisdom psalm? I'm here to tell you. A wisdom psalm is something that we come to and we see that the, the author is showing us a contrast between righteous living and evil or wicked living. And they're going to see not only those things that we are promoted, but then also the consequences of those things. 
A righteous life leads to A. A wicked life leads to B over here. You're going to see the contrast through that. You're also going to see, if you look through the Psalms, you'll see either with this or alongside of it, uh, and some Psalms are completely dedicated to this, is to the praise and exaltation of the Word of God, actually to His laws. If you look at Psalm 119, the whole thing is about that. And we see that throughout Scriptures as well. But in the Psalms, even a wisdom psalm points us then to what is most important, revelation, what God has given to us so that we might know then who He is and how to react to that. And so a wisdom psalm shows us what a wise man does. And by wise, I mean wise in God's eyes, who will earn, again, nothing of his own, but rather submits to God and finds out what it means to follow God. What does it mean to be wise? So this psalm shows us that, one who submits then to God's ways and to his kingly rule. And so that's what this is all about today. Uh, several of the Psalms work this way. As you re- just in this one right here, you saw the first thing that happens is the writer poses a question. All right, so the first thing he says is, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He then answers his own question to help the audience answer the questions that they have about specific matters. Uh, they, they, it's stuff that's happening in life, things that are around them, that they, especially the writer, knows that there needs to be a proper answer to this. And so when he answers this, he is giving us godly wisdom so that we can understand then how we should approach life and what it means to follow him. So he does this, he answers back again to the, the answer to the question is he's offering God's wisdom concerning these life questions. In this psalm, David is asking this question because he has a problem with what is actually going, around, going on around him. Oftentimes, especially psalm, I'm sorry, especially Uh, wisdom literature, it's this disconnect between I know God says these things, but I see all these things happening, and in my eyes, it doesn't match up. I know that's not true, but man, it seems as though the rich and and the wicked people, they prosper, the ones that don't care about what God says. And the, 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 the psalm writer here specifically is, is, is helping us understand that type of disconnect and saying, this doesn't seem to be working out. What is actually happening, Lord? Can you shed some truth on this? And that's what we're learning today in this psalm. In this psalm, again, it's kind of like, if you remember back to Psalm 2, if you're familiar with Psalm 2, it's why do the heathen rage or the wicked people plot? Why do they somehow seem to get ahead and do these things? Like, are you there, God? knowing full well that, again, the kings of the earth are raging and plotting, but they won't last. This psalm, though, goes a little bit closer. It's not just about, in general, the the rulers and the kings of the earth. He's asking, no, no, I want to know who's going to dwell in your tent, tabernacle? Who is going to dwell on your holy hill? I want to know who are your people, because I'm seeing some discrepancies here around me. Uh, Again, the 15th Psalm, David is specifically asking, who can sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell on your holy hill? So a little context might be helpful for us. We cannot tell with 100% certainty, but most likely what's happening, David is writing this out of a situation, his exile from Absalom, his son, who has chased him out. He's on his way out, running away from the palace, running away from the kingdom in that way, so that he might save his life. David is the anointed king. Absalom is not. And this is what's happening. He's being pushed out, so he's running for his life. And this psalm is then spoken out of that type of a situation, knowing full well that someone else then 
is in his tabernacle, the earthly one. Someone is living in the city there of David. And, and unfortunately, that's not where David is. There's some kind of a problem here because he's the one out um, in the outskirts and caves and running around hiding from the, the powers that be that might hurt him. And so here we see that he's in exile. He's not at home. He's running away, trying to avoid being killed. And David is cut off from the sanctuary of God, his tabernacle, his tent. And he is living from, by faith from day to day. And so, like we just said, those that are in the, the tabernacle are scoundrels. They're not the anointed one. They're not the ones following after God. They're not, as this will show us, the ones that truly ought to be dwelling in his holy hill or those who dwell in the tabernacle. He sees sinners who technically are there in God's city, and he asks a question, or really he's actually instructing Israel in this, about the reality of the situation. What's actually going on here, God? David asks a very important, and it sounds like a geographical question or a location, but in reality, he's talking about ultimate things. Who, who really dwells, God, in your tabernacle? Who really is, can be in your presence? Uh, so these two words, too, uh, I think that we can probably, we will pick up on this naturally, but tent or tabernacle and holy hill, it's like Zion. If you were to ask yourselves, I think pretty simple Bible study, think back through what we know about scriptures. Where are these places? What are these types of places? The tabernacle represents what? God's presence with his people. And so we're talking about the same thing with his holy hill. That is where God is. And those who are, in a sense, submitted to and knowing and trusting and on God's team, as it were, live in that holy hill. So what David's asking is then not about specifically a tent and a location. He's saying, who are the people that can dwell in your presence? Who are the people who are able to do that? Like, they, the, What do they look like? We would even go one step further and we'd say, what does it look like for those people that are, are part of the church? What are they look? What do they look like? How can we describe them at all? Um, he's not asking, by the way, how they got into this presence, and they're not asking why or like how do they deserve to be in the presence. That's not the question here. Don't get confused. We're trying to make sure we, we keep with the, what the author said here. He said, "Who can dwell in your in your city? Who can be in your tent? Not why, not how." He's not going into those things. We will get a hint of some of those things. But that's not where the question is going today. The question is, who? And you'll notice what kind of person can legitimately dwell in your presence, God? The answer is not direct. He doesn't say the Israelites. He doesn't even say God's people. His response, rather, is a description of these types of people. So it's not some sort of, okay, if you have this title, you're in. Rather, he is going to describe these people and how, what they look like. So those are the ones that are going to fit this bill. He is giving a reader a visual, the reader a visual of what it looks like when you're trying to discern God's people from the raging nations around that say that there is no God. How do they look different? They're all humans. They all have skin. They all have faces and this and that. And they all have to eat, etc. What distinguishes them, though? Who can dwell in your tent? Who can be on your holy hill? Verse 2 gives us our answer. It is the one who walks blamelessly, who does what is right, who speaks truth in his heart. That's who can live on this holy hill, his tent. That is the kind of person who dwells in God's house. That's the kind of person who belongs to God and can be then in his presence. 
You can tell those who are his people by these things. The person who walks, does, and speaks in step with God's ways. Those are the people who can be in his house. Uh, do you see anything, by the way, if you're looking at these and you, and you, this and you know the Old Testament, one of the questions I have here, when I'm looking at them like, is that it? Like those are the things? We don't see anything of the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's not here. Do you see that? We don't see the first or second great commandment, which, or, or the Ten Commandments, excuse me, is to make graven images or some sort of form of idolatry, keeping God to be the first. We don't see that. So this is important. What we see here is a very external list. So the question then to us, I think we ought to remember then, this is not everything that it means to be a believer. That is not what's happening in this list. It doesn't mean do all this and you're accepted and you're good and you get to heaven. Rather, he's saying, what do they look like? Can you show me, Lord, what they look like? And what we're going to find out here through verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, we are going to get a description of those who can dwell in his house. These are all external things. Look at that. It says, walk, do, speak. Those are all actions. And so we have to keep that to our scope of what the author is dealing with, not the broader scope of like, well, this is everything, and if I just do these things, I'm good. There's a whole bunch more scripture to be added in here. We're taking a, a look at one here today, and we want to ask this question. So, uh, do you see, again, we don't see anything specifically of this. It's very helpful for a student of theology to understand then that this is an external list. We're making sure we understand it before we go into it. It's very limited scope, but it's a very important one, or else he wouldn't have done it. It doesn't mean that we can just get rid of it. Uh, the question then is, who can dwell in your house on a holy hill? And the answer in verse 2 says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. The statement then can be broken down into these three parts, right? You have blamelessly, he w walks blamelessly. This is another word of saying he is full of integrity before God and before man. He does the truth. He does those things which are right. To do right, continuing back in, exactly what it sounds like. This is to do righteousness, to obey the law. This man obeys and does right. To speak the truth in his heart. This is the fact that his speech is faithful to what is really inside of his heart. And what's really inside of his heart is actually God's truth, not just his own wily heart that wants to put himself on the throne. But the answer here is not necessarily meant to be taken apart. We can, and we just did, Actually, it's meant to be pulled together as the whole. It's much more powerful. You see the synthesis of these three ideas. It's more than just the component parts. It works together to show that everything to walk, to do, to speak, everything that a person does is in harmony with the expectations of God and man. His actions then are consistent with the law of God. David shows the reader, or the singer probably more appropriately as he's reading the psalm, what someone who dwells in God's presence looks like. And if this weren't clear enough, he's going to give us three more verses. So if you want to know, and we'll get into this a little bit in Psalm 24, if you just read the first two verses, you have the whole answer. He gives you the question. Verse 2 is the answer to the question. Verse 3, 4, and 5 are then going to expand on that answer in verse 2. We are getting even a fuller picture from three, four, and five specific instances because all of us need a little bit more explanation sometimes. So we have that expansion here, and that's what we're going to look at it real quick. So we saw the first one already in verse two. He who walks blamelessly, does what is right, speaks the truth in his heart. Let's go to verse three, though. This, is one, this person, then, is one who does not slander with his tongue. In other words, he doesn't cause damage to others with his words. 
You know what slander is, whether it's gossip, whether it's throwing bad stuff around for other people, whether it's bad-mouthing people, whatever it is, this man is not characterized by slander. Second thing, and does no evil to his neighbor. This is all like a catch-all to note that he doesn't do anything to his neighbor that would harm him, would cause him harm. Start at the beginning here, is, he, again, he says slander, keeps it wide. There's no specific person that he's talking about. The next one, look at this, he says to his neighbor, even further down, even to the friend level, the last one, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, we rarely use the word reproach. I don't use it in my everyday language very often. I know what it is, but what are we talking about here? He is talking about kind of the way that these words work together. It's casting a slur or some way of making someone look bad. Probably in our vernacular, we'd say throwing them under the bus. We'd make that person look bad in some way or another. He won't even do that to a friend. In all these ways, then, he is showing kindness and respect to his fellow image bearers. He is looking at those that are around him and treating them the way that God intended them to be treated. All the way back to remembering that we are made in God's image and so forth. We should, and so then, we ought to respect and be kind to one, another's, to one another. That's what this man does. He is willingly, actively known for this kind of stuff. He treats people with respect and kindness. Verse 4 says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Now, in his eyes then, in this, in this righteous man's eyes, someone who is a vile person is despised. In other words, he considers the one who is actively pursuing evil, explicitly as an evildoer and does these things, he calls a spade a spade. He is what God calls him. He is evil and wicked. Now, notice real quickly here, he doesn't say that he judges him or calls him out or berates him in front of everyone else. It says, in his eyes, he's despised. In other words, he considers the ones that God calls sinners and wicked, he considers them as well to be despised and to be sinful and wicked. It says nothing more about the fact that they're like past salvation or anything like that. Again, he is calling righteousness righteousness and evil evil something that we struggle with sometimes in our own day. You know this is true also by the second phrase, right? So he says, in, he says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those, who honor those, who's, <laughs> who honors those who fear the Lord. The opposite side of, that, side of that coin is the one that's vile and wicked and goes after his own, his own lusts and desires and does what he wants to and says there's no God, he's despised. But the one who actually fears the Lord and lives in obedience to him, and trusts him. That man, he honors him. He honors the one who honors God. In other words, when he looks at those things, he knows what's important. And he can see that he that is wicked, he ought to be despised. You're wrong. But he that honors and loves and trusts the Lord, he ought to be honored because he's doing the right things. He's promoting goodness. He's promoting fear of the Lord. So, well, the last thing there in verse 4 is very interesting. Uh, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who swears to their own hurt and does not change? What, is, what does this mean? If I can maybe add some commas or some maybe little more words to help us out here. We're talking about when he gives his word, when he swears, when he promises, when he gives his word about something, he is going to go all the way through and not change his word on it. Now insert back that other idea, to his own hurt. Do you see that? What he's doing there is saying, even if at the end of the day, he said he was going to do something, but then some things change around, like, oh man, I'm going to lose money on this deal. 
he doesn't back out because his word means something. Truth is truth. And so he's not going to change because it's going to hurt him somehow. He is going to make sure that he stays true to what he said he would do. He is therefore representing God. He is doing what God would do as well. He is a man of truth. So he doesn't want to weasel his way out or do those things, but rather he stays by it. Verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest? Now, this does not mean at all that you cannot be a banker or some sort of person who would gain on a loan. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is a very specific instance that we would understand better as usury, something that we would see someone who's in a tough situation, a loan shark, as it were, maybe, who would come up and, oh, I can help you out of this bad time for you, no problem. Your interest will be 35, 40, 50%, though, you know, as you pay it back. And you take advantage of someone else's rough circumstances, whether it's financial or any other of those things, and you are gaining off of their problems. You are taking advantage, literally, of them and turning it back for your good. And it's actually going to hurt them in the long run. The wise man, the man who can dwell in God's house, is not like that. He does not do that. And keep going on to that. The next thing there says, um, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. I think we all understand that. For those that, again, when justice comes, it needs to be served for them. Not, if I can gain somehow out of this, I will, and even if it's the detriment of someone else. This man would never take a bribe. And in this society, that would happen. Those with means could easily bribe the courts or take bribes, and they could make their lives much better, more lucrative, and it would hurt the others. But this man does not do that. He stands up for what is right. And again, it is the truth that is in his heart, and he does the right thing. So to him, money then and financial gain is not as important as the way that people are treated, these fellow image bearers. If I can put it even stronger, the way I would say to my children, people are more important than money. People are far more valuable than your gain. The way that you treat others is far more important than you getting a few more bucks or you getting more pleasure or cushion or whatever it is. To this man, People are more important and valuable. And uh, I think you should all remember that, all you Black Friday shoppers. So I told you we took this spiritual accountability thing seriously. Um, the psalm then closes out with a statement of confidence. If you look at the last section here, the last of verse 5, he who does these things shall never be moved. After all these different things, and you, and you see how he, that, he is going, one that would be able to dwell in God's holy hill or able to, in his tent, he does all these things that are so contrary to the way our world does work in business. They, if they can get ahead, they will. If they need to slander someone's name, no problem. If they can get ahead some other way, they'll do it. Uh, they're certainly not blameless. Instead, though, when we see all those things, he puts this statement at the end to remind us. Even though I've told you that all the things that you should do are against what the world thinks is going to be successful, if you do these things, you'll never be moved. He is then referring back to the beginning. He will dwell in his tent. He will be the one who abides in his holy city, on his holy hill. And so it's, it's a, again, a statement of confidence. The person is known by God. He dwells in his presence and will do so forever. He will never be moved. He is assured that he will indeed, as the first statement said then, dwell in his tent and live on his holy hill. 
He will not be left then to rot in Sheol or to go away from God's presence into eternal misery. Rather, he is, get this, rather he is rewarded with the presence of God. Now, we know the, scripture, the story of Scripture, right? We know creation, fall, redemption, new creation. This is what our grandparents, our great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, had in perfection, communion with God. They were living under His rule and reign in happy fellowship with God, in His presence. And therefore, what he, what he says that you will never be moved from is His presence. Going back to what He intended from the beginning. And the thing that separates us from that is our sin. We knew that from Genesis. We know that from our own experience. We know that that separates us from God. And he who lives this type of a life that you can see from the outside externally, again, a lot more is going on behind the scenes. Don't forget that. But you can notice these things about him. That's the person who will never be moved and who will dwell in his holy hill. Um, so this psalm, works through the whole thing, to me, uh, it's truly a gem. It, it's helpful. It's convicting. And it's encouraging. All three of these, and I don't say these lightly, I'm going to go through these. It's helpful for us, it's convicting, and it's encouraging. All three of these things, and I'll explain why. Uh, first of all, it's helpful. As readers, again, or, or you know, as we go through this thing, we're trying to understand what it's, what it's, what it's really going to mean for us. And what is that? what are we supposed to look like? Are we supposed to do that directly, or how is that supposed to happen? We're not asked then um, to be robots and just regurgitate whatever we hear and do the things that everyone's supposed to do. Okay, I need to go out and I need to hit this list, make sure I do all these different things. It's not good enough to be like some of my children sometime who just spit out the verses that I make them do the Bible verses every other night around the table, and their hearts are wicked as can be. They don't have any desire to actually obey God in following these verses. That's not what we're called to do, is to do the rote different things and make sure we check these things off the lists. We know from the first and greatest commandment that we are to love the Lord our God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And there's something behind the scenes that is going on that is far more important than these things that we see in this list. And so with that assumption and that going on behind the scenes here, that is where we're coming. We're coming out of that heart that loves the Father, that has been changed by Him. And now it evidences itself by walking in the Spirit. Now, I, knew, I know I'm going all over here in, in the Scriptures, but that, that's us. We have been changed now, and we have been brought from deadness to life. We've gone from darkness to light, and we are completely different. Something else is going on in us. Again, if we, if we have some sort of unconcerned recitation of these truths, and check this off the list and do that and make sure I get all these things, we end up being a lot like how James describes those who say they believe in God and they say, but so do, so do the demons, and look at their fate. Not very favorable, and they don't get, gain anything because they don't trust. They don't believe that God is who He says He is to the point that they will trust Him and put their lives, everything that they have, in His, in his hands. And so, if you're an unbeliever this morning, this list will seem boring, this list will seem undoable, and it doesn't really make sense why we'd want to do these things. Perspective is very important. Because if you're one that thinks you're a believer, this is going to be very frustrating to you to do these things because you're never going to want to do them. And you're like, oh, I need to do these things, but I really don't want to do any of these things all the time, and I can't do any of these things. And you're going to try as much as you can to deceive yourself continually and do those things. But 
if you're a believer, one who has trusted Christ with your entire existence, all of your eggs are in the basket of Jesus in a sense. You have completely trusted him and you have submitted to him as the king, Jesus Christ, then his, this psalm is helpful, convicting, and encouraging. David's description of one who can dwell in God's presence is a quick reference then for us to understand what it looks like for those uh, to, as we consider people around us and as we examine ourselves. It's helpful for to us to see what do they look like? What am I supposed to look like when others look? Are they going to be ones that are, are, are in God's holy temple? Are they ones, as we say, that are part of the church? Remember, we briefly touched on the idea that David doesn't call out uh, a specific group of people, those who are Israelites, those who are God's people. It's not necessarily the ones that the world would expect might dwell in God's presence. The world's opinion matters, matters very little to God. That's not what's important here. The criteria set out by God is what's actually much more important. And so, as we look at this criteria and we see what is the evidence of walking in the Spirit and obeying God and knowing Him, this is what we're seeing here. So, for the believer, this is helpful. It shows us others and it also shows us ourselves what we should be looking at for our own lives. Those who dwell in His presence do not need to meet the criteria set by the world, but rather the criteria that, it sets out, that, that God sets out. And so this criteria, can, you can notice these people. They walk and do and speak in a manner full of integrity for God and men. That's what verse 2 says. Walk, do, speak. That's what they do before God. This is a list of noticeable behavior. You can see these things. You can interact with them. You can't see a person's heart. None of us can. But we can see how they interact with others around them. This list helps us to notice those who are God's people and sets a very brief description for what we should be looking like too. Don't shed this as something that you don't need to worry about. This should characterize us. And so you need to listen. It's important that we may take this seriously. The psalm is helpful for us. Again, it is not an exhaustive list. We've already hit on that. But it is relevant and true. So I'll take one more step. To ignore it is foolishness. Do not ignore it, church. We can't. This is how we're supposed to look. So examine ourselves. So it is helpful both for ourselves and to see others. Also, this psalm is convicting, kind of tailing off of what I just talked about, though. This hits at the heart of self-examination and really starts to get us into our understanding of what does it mean to be in the process of sanctification as we are made more like Jesus Christ. What does that look like? If we think that this psalm is only relevant to the Old Testament saints, then we've, we've totally kind of cut some of its value out for us. That's not really for us. Why are we reading it then? Who cares? Further, I know what some of you are, probably, are properly thinking, by the way, but if we relegate this psalm only to a messianic fulfillment, that's like a Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of this psalm, if we relegate it to only that, then we have also done ourselves a great disservice. If the only one that can actually do this is Jesus Christ and we don't have to worry about any of this at all, why read it? We just glory in that and that's it. I would warn us against that. This is not only, only for Jesus. Now, we'll get into this and see how important it is. When we read this psalm for the first time, our first answer to those things are, there's only one person that can do this. There's really only one person that could actually do this of his own merit. That's Jesus Christ. And our response to that should be glory. Praise God. So don't get worried. <laughs> it is him. He is the one that fulfills this. He's the one that can dwell on his own merit 
on a holy hill. He is the one that can enter the tabernacle and dwell there on his own merit because he lives, he walks blamelessly, he does right, and he speaks truth in his heart. He does those things when we couldn't. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, on his own merit. Uh, if you think that's a, a fluke, though, like that, well, Chris, you're going too far, let's look at Psalm 24 together. So pick up your Bible and go to Psalm 24. I think this is helpful for us to see because it's kind of a sister psalm or a parallel. We're going to start in verse 3. And notice the first two verses are going to sound very familiar to verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 15, all right? Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. We have almost the same thing coming out of 3 and 4 that we just saw in 1 and 2. Except in this one, we have a greater answer than just the one that meets the criteria of verse 4. We have a very specific fulfillment. The king of glory is Jesus Christ. He is the one that can actually enter in and dwell in God's holy place where we have no way to merit, merit ourselves into that situation. Only God himself, Jesus Christ, could do such a thing. So we know the ultimate fulfillment is of this psalm is obviously Jesus Christ. My question then for us is, is that it? Is this then completely irrelevant for us, except for the glory, you know, and the fact that, that Jesus was the one that was able to dwell in God's presence? Again, I think we need to be careful. This is a glorious truth that we celebrate each and every Sunday, that we celebrate every time we think about the gospel, that God is the gospel and able to come into our lives and Jesus Christ was the one to save us because we knew we could never, ever, ever measure up. We glory in that as Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. But I, I would like us to be careful that we don't interpret it so narrowly that we move us on from the details of this psalm. We need to remember that there is a context in which this psalm was written and that much of the scripture finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, but that there is much more for the hearer to glean and, and to obey about, as it were. Don't, don't jump too far. Don't think of that word blameless meaning perfect. That's not true to the context here either. To be blameless is to have a life that is characterized by integrity, by those, again, to be one who lives a moral life, one who has an attitude that desires to please God and acts accordingly. So this psalm says that they should describe us, that really it should describe us as believers. And we should take note of this, that this is what characterizes those who dwell in God's presence. And then we should react accordingly. No one besides God knows you better than you. I don't know you. I can't see your heart. But no one besides God knows you better than you. So Ask yourself the questions that the psalm says here. Do you walk blamelessly before God and man? Do you do what is right? Do you the words that come out of your mouth match a Christian heart? Do you ever slander others? 
Do you honor those who love and fear God, or by your actions possibly do you honor and support those who are wicked in God's definition? Do you keep promises even if it means that will incur hurt for yourself, whether financial, physical, or otherwise? Are people or materials more important to you than others? These are really important things for us to consider and for us to repent of because I know my own heart. I do not measure up to what's happening in this list. However, I know that there's more to the story than just that. Do not walk away saying, well, I certainly don't do those things. Good thing Jesus did them. That's great. Now I don't have to do them anymore. If that's your response, Paul says stuff about that, if you remember that. Should we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. You don't get it if that's the truth. These things that he is calling us to are not a drudgery. They are things that are in line with his character and to bring us, first of all, closer to him, but also for our own joy and for our good. They will please and bring honor to God the Father and Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit, but they will also be for our joy. And so if we push it off and say, I'm all about grace, I don't have to do anything, I'm glad I accepted Jesus Christ when I was a young kid and now I can do whatever I want to, you really ought to think about whether or not you actually trust Jesus Christ. And if you are like the demons who say, I believe in God, and they tremble because they know that they don't trust him for their eternal security. They don't submit themselves to King Jesus. Rather, they live for themselves. So it is a point for us to be convicted about and consider, is this true of me? Or have I looked other ways? Uh, I'd ask you, is this the response of David? <laughs> Does he respond this way? Or any other Old Testament reader, anyone, the apostles, etc.? No. David and all of us ought to respond to this admonition in faith. This is not to slap us on the hand and say, you better do this or you won't get to heaven. Listen, if you think that by doing this, you'll merit favor and get to heaven, first of all, you have really bad theology and you haven't read the rest of the scriptures. You're wrong. You can't get to heaven by doing this little list here. Sorry. And if you don't understand that, please, first come talk to us. But I think that you do understand that. This is not a merit list that somehow we're going to make it into the kingdom because we do these things. This is showing us what Christians look like. And so we should desire to look like this because we have been changed and transformed and he is making us more like himself. We already know about this, right? We're in Galatians. We know what's going on in Galatians. 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. It's not, not me that lives anymore, but Christ lives through me. And so the wicked person that I know to myself to be, every day I keep trying to climb back up on that throne and do what I want to do and live for myself. But he calls us to walk by the Spirit, to crucify the flesh as I submit myself to him and say, not what I want, Lord, but what do you want? And I want him to change me so that I might do those things which are right. And this is what it will look like. David, tried, he trusts the promise that was given to his fathers. That's the same promise that we're trusting, that God would be true to what he said, right? He said, and he was trusting the one that would come, that one would reign forever and would destroy sin. We happen to know him after the fact, and we trust in the same one that will be true to his promises. He will not change, and we are then to be looking like him. We know that the only one who can do these things of his own merit is Jesus Christ, and we praise him for that. That's why we sing praises to his name, because we knew from the beginning 
that we did nothing but hate God and push him away and said there is no God and we'll do what we want to do. And I'll get glory for myself. I want renown. I want money. I want pleasure. I want comfort. But we recognize that Jesus Christ opened our eyes to the deadness and slavery of that sinful life and calls us to submit and have freedom in Jesus Christ and to then walk by the Spirit. And if you think what I'm trying to do here today is say, hey, come in for your, your regular beating of what you need to do. Go back to your houses and do this. Get your lists ready. Let's go, let's go, let's go. You're short-circuiting what happens in the Christian life. The first thing is we see Christ. We see ourselves that are dead and we can't do anything. The only way for us ever to please God is in Jesus Christ. And thus we repent and we trust God to do what he can do and what we cannot do. And he empowers us then to go out and live. Oftentimes I think, I know I do this, I don't, I don't wake up and preach the gospel to myself. I say, okay, if I'm feeling really good about it, I'm like, okay, I need to do some good things. I need to do this. And I short circuit the whole process instead of having Christ live through me, I live. Chris gets back on the throne and I live and I do the things that are the good works. But we know what that brings. Those are filthy rags to God. Self-righteousness. Things that are not found in Jesus Christ working out. And we're not walking by the Spirit. We're walking by the law. We're trying to fulfill it the way that we should do it and find all our power in ourselves. We already know this from Galatians, but again, it's a good reminder for us to know that this is what we're supposed to look like. Last thing here, because there is a piece of this where you feel very discouraged because there's times where I hit that wall and I say, man, I cannot do this list to encourage us, to remind us that one has gone before us who did the list perfectly and who is our confidence in our salvation, Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. We are to glory and be encouraged in Him because He's the one that rescued us from the pit. But one more thing here is that last statement, right? He who does these things shall never be moved. Our lives as Christians. Now, I recognize that we live in like the Southern culture where everyone says they're a Christian, and that becomes real muddy, and I really kind of hate that. Um, but I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm a little bit more northern, so I can be a little bit like that. Um, but we ought to then look completely different from the world around us, and this is one of the ways to do it, by looking at this list and seeing ourselves completely different, one that walks blamelessly, does right, and that speaks truth in his heart. Um, one that does those things will not be moved. And we can have confidence then in the one who says, this is the way that you ought to be living. This is the right way. Don't be scared off by the rest of the world. They are running around to their demise. And they will one day rot and shield in, away from me because of their wickedness and because they did not love me and they did not know me. You will not be moved as you trust and submit to the King, King Jesus. So what I encourage you with today is knowing that you will not be moved. You will not be left alone. You will not be separated from God as you submit and love and follow him alone as we seek him. And so our hope is not in this list. It never was, guys. It never was in this list. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And we glory in that. And it works itself out in walking by the Spirit. And this is what the walking by the Spirit looks like. So if you want to know, okay, I'm, I'm obeying, I'm, I'm, I'm following your word, and I, or I'm, I'm, I've repented, and I'm doing these things. Now, what does it mean to look, walk by the Spirit? This is one of the ways that we see it looks like to walk by the Spirit. These are the things that should characterize us. 
And so we ought to then hope in God, trusting Him, and walk then in this power. Not our own. It was never our own. But rather His working through us. And so tomorrow, today, we ask that God would help us to be crucified with Him and that we would, not get, we would get out of the way, take ourselves off the throne, and allow Jesus Christ to live us through us and walk then by the Spirit over and over and over. That means speaking the truth. That means being blameless. That means doing right. That means not slandering, but rather looking out for others' good. And really, it's coming back, and that's, that's the evidence that the first commandment is in place. We love the Lord our God, our heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a huge section of what it means to love your neighbor. So let us be encouraged in that way and go forth to obey. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love for us. Help us to see your word and this psalm specifically as help to us, as a convictor to us, but also, Lord, as an encourager. May we hope in you as you are the king. We ask, God, that you would help us not to see ourselves as the answer to this psalm, but Jesus as the answer. And then we then react in, in, in loving obedience to you. We need your help, God. So desperately we need your help. We ask for your care in Jesus' name.